Welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. I'm here to welcome you into the world of orgasmic living by hosting experts to discuss orgasmic topics such as nutrition, spirituality, personal development, sexuality, and much more. Here, we will offer lifestyle lessons that can help you lead a fulfilling, joyous, and orgasmic lifestyle. I'm your guide, Venus O'Hara. Welcome to the 22nd episode of the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. In this Flower Moon episode, I'll be discussing BDSM. I'll be sharing an erotic story called Sunday Worship. Then I'll be discussing the book I'm reading now, which is How to Be Everything by Emily Wodnick. And finally, we'll be experiencing a guided meditation with affirmations for BDSM and fetishism. But first, let's talk about my own journey with BDSM and fetishism. BDSM. Let me just remind myself about what those letters stand for. I've got Wikipedia in front of me and it says BDSM is a variety of often erotic practices or role-playing involving bondage, discipline, dominance and submission, sadomasochism and other related interpersonal dynamics. Well, yes. So I have been into... Well, I've spent kind of my earlier sexual years very interested in the topic of BDSM and also fetishism, which is sometimes those two terms are kind of, they do kind of overlap, but they don't always have to. And I would describe a fetish as it's a sexual response to a non-sexual, let's say non-sexual body part, such as the feet or the neck or a non-sexual action such as smoking or tickling or maybe a non-sexual object such as a pair of heels or latex, etc. So some people can have a, a foot fetish, but they might not be into BDSM, whereas some people who are submissive in BDSM might enjoy foot worship. So those two terms can overlap, but it all depends on how you see yourself, of course. And I was really into this. Um, I don't know how it kind of happened, but I think when I was younger, I was, I felt clumsy and insecure. And my first boyfriend actually gave me a copy of the book, Venus in Furs to read. And I just devoured this book. I absolutely loved it. It's, um, by Leopold von Sacher Masuk. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, but this book is where what um, inspired the word masochism. And it's a story about Venus, who is a redhead with green eyes and white skin. So I thought, oh, that's just like me. But she had this attitude, which was very domineering. And she had lots of power over her slave or her sub Severin, who's the male protagonist of the story. And I guess subconsciously, or maybe quite consciously as well, I, I wanted to have that type of effect on my first boyfriend, but it was that, it was the complete opposite. I was in awe of him, but I don't think he was so much of me. Um, I think he did talk about his previous girlfriend before me quite a lot, which was sometimes annoying. So when I, when I read this book, um, I did like the story in itself, but I also felt that I would love someone to adore me that much. And he kind of, um, 
I wouldn't say coerced, but encouraged me to take the dominant role um, with him. And I had just lost my virginity with him. So imagine going from virgin to dom. It was quite a big transition, but it was very liberating to kind of become someone else. And it all started with a role play um, once, actually. I was at his house, his parents' house, and we weren't allowed to be in his bedroom alone. And we had to sit in the kitchen and just kind of talk and suddenly he just, we just got into start, we started doing a role play and I was quite good at it. And I think we were both really good at it. And I was, I was just fascinated by how my body could respond to, to just words and without any physical contact. And I had a lot, a lot of big imagination. So it was something that really turned me on. And I guess it was a mutual interest that we discovered through a situation of for, for prohibition, I guess. And, um, and actually those conversations were probably a lot hotter and more explicit than what ever we could have ever done in, in his bedroom had we been allowed to go there alone. So that my excellent explorations with him were quite, um, I wouldn't say they were, I never had, it sounds really bad, but I, they never had um, safe words or anything like that. We just kind of um, really explored things with with no limits. And um, I don't think I was, I, I might have had some maybe psychological um, um, dangers or I was on the kind of limit in, in those ways. Because I think sometimes, which is a terrible thing to do, is that I kind of used BDSM to kind of get my power in the relationship, which is a terrible thing. Because sometimes when we weren't having sex, he was a bit of an asshole, this guy. And I tended to kind of use BDSM and, and do- domination to kind of get my revenge on him, which is obviously a terrible thing to do. It should always be safe, sane, consensual, and there should always be um, safe words, etc. And when I finally broke up with this guy, I mean, and we really got into lots of experimentation with whips and bondage and role play and dressing up and and things like that. But when, um, but it was kind of like a, a reflection of the toxic relationship that we that we had. It was just very very twisted. And when we finally um, broke up, I just took all of that, all my paraphernalia, and I threw it in the bin. And I kind of got rid of it. And the next boyfriend I had was the complete opposite. He was kind of like, it was just kind of like in naked in bed sex, which I hadn't really known before when I was discovering sex. And um, I felt kind of safer um, with that type of person. I didn't really, really want to explore those those parts of me, but it took me several years to get back into BDSM. I, think, I guess my interest or my fascination or attraction to it never completely left. And as I became more confident in myself, I didn't feel as though I was going to replay things that I'd lived before in the t- in terms of the toxicity of the relationship that I first enjoyed, um, that I had BDSM relationships in. And I enjoyed so many different things um, in my explorations. And I guess mostly I, I did enjoy the role of the, of being in, of the femdom, being the dominant woman and really taking control of the whole situation. And I'm still quite dominant, actually, just in a kind of vanilla sexual situation. I don't really like it when someone kind of takes control or kind of tries to immobilize me or tell me what to do, or I really don't like it. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's worth exploring one day, but even if it's um, a kinky situation or not, I do enjoy being dominant. I just find it, oh, I don't know what it is about it. Um, I don't know, it's part of it may, might be the adoration, the worship, 
But also I do enjoy playing the submissatrix, the very naughty sub who's kind of provoking the, I guess they call it um, topping from the bottom, which has a kind of bad reputation. But I really enjoy that, that type of um, um, scenario as well. And I, so I've, I've enjoyed lots of different um, experiences with BDSM um, in, my, in my life. It wasn't, but it wasn't something that you can maybe read in a guidebook and then practice. It wasn't that easy in my experience. It was all about the energy that I had with a particular person. And that was what um, dictated whether I could enjoy that or not. So I could, maybe in my life, I've probably only enjoyed it with a handful, on one handful of people. And then when I was in more vanilla relationships, I, did, I tried, but I was very, very disappointed. It's not something that everyone enjoys. And then if someone's just doing it because you want to, it's just not, doesn't really have the same magic to it. And I remember one guy that I was, um, I had a, a kind of friends with benefits relationship for many years, and he really understood my kind of artistic, imaginative, playful side. And um, we were having sex once and um, I was saying I had a fantasy that he would pick me up and um, in, in a renowned kind of very dangerous part of Barcelona, he would pick me up in the street and he would offer to pay me um, 10 euros for a blowjob or something like that. And I told him this and I said, I, he told me I would pay you five. <laughs> anyway, and then I told him that what my name would be and I was thinking of all these names that I could use as a, as my kind of call girl name. And I said, I said the name Natasha and he started like shagging me like Natasha, Natasha. And it was really crazy. I wrote an article for GQ Spain about it called Call Me Natasha. Yeah. So I found the whole thing about pretending to be someone else very, very liberating. And that, and that um, episode of that Natasha shag gave me an idea for our subsequent encounters. Every time he came to my house, I would dress up as someone different. So I was really into kind of dressing up as well and not, not with the kind of outfits that you would find in, a, in an erotic store. I would just kind of use my normal clothes, maybe dressing like a teacher or a schoolgirl, or um, it was just crazy. Um, and then I would just like open the door, dressed a certain way, and then I would go straight into a dialogue of um, the role I was playing. And he would just follow along because he was um, an actor on the side as well. So that kind of like really, uh, was really, really fun. And I used to tell my friends about it. They say, doesn't he laugh? And I was like, no, we were both really serious and into this role or role playing. And I found that this whole thing got my mind it was like my brain was my biggest, the clitoris. <laughs> it was bigger than it was my, it was like more significant than my, than my clitoris or anything. And I couldn't kind of like have vanilla sex with this person. It was always some far-fetched fantasy and role play that would be quite spontaneous and like improv improvised. And it really, really turned me on. So when I um, signed up for a modeling agency years later as a commercial actress, they said, can you act? I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> Just thinking about my role play experience. And interestingly, when I became more spiritual, I kind of, um, um, how would I say, I just didn't feel attracted to the world of BDSM anymore because I realized that part of it wanting to dominate was maybe linked to my ego and um, just the desire for some sort of validation or recognition that I didn't really feel that I had um, without it somehow. Um, whereas now I'm more into kind of, I, I like the fetish, the kind of, um, the sensual aspect of it, because it's still very sensual BDSM. It's not just tits and ass. I mean, there's a lot of, um, more attention paid, paid, um, on, um, other parts of the body, the nape, the feet, all of these things. 
And the first time I actually used a safe word was many years later when I was doing a photo session for my website about tickling. And um, I was with a photographer who's a fetish photographer and he's also a tickle fetishist. And he said, what's the, what's the safe word going to be? And I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I've never done one, used one before, even though I absolutely highly recommend it. It's, it's not just a recommendation, but it's an obligation. I think it's so, so important to have con- consent in these types of, uh, in these types of sexual scenarios, because you just don't know um, what someone's limits are. I mean, people can just go along with things and then just like, because they don't want to kick up, a, make a scene. They just kind of go along with things they don't might not want to do. That wasn't really my my situation, but I just, I think it's incredibly important. But going back to the tickle fetishist, um, he asked me uh, what what um, past, past safe word I should use. And I was thinking, hmm, be nice. That was going to be the one. And then every time he's tickling me, he would say, don't you want to say the password? What am I saying password for? Safe word. Don't you want to say be nice? Go on, go on. He kept provoking me. So that put me in a kind of state of um, wanting to resist saying it as much as possible to kind of maintain some control as it were, even though I was immobilized and being tickled, which was really, really funny. And also I was really interested in the mental or psychological aspect of um, fetishism particularly, because I don't think it's about tits and ass and physical sensations that much. It's all about really what happens in your brain and your imagination. Because I do consider myself to have a very developed and active imagination, especially where sexuality is concerned. And when I started my career as a fetish and erotic model, I wasn't really interested in showing all of my skin and being completely naked. Um, I really enjoyed just um, showing just maybe certain parts of me and a photo that wasn't in any way explicit or naked, but it had a fetish kind of connotation. For example, a good example would be let's say wearing a blindfold and having an open mouth, that type of image is, there's nothing X-rated about it, but you can imagine a million things in your mind about what's happening there. So it does end up being sexually stimulating. So I kind of like liked to create photos that would um, help me to interact with my spectator and um, provoke the spectator in a way that's not just um, a passive, someone passively looking at a nude body. I really enjoyed that challenge of making things that weren't explicit to to be erotic and enticing and uh, provocative. It was really cool. And um, I couldn't really kind of um, settle on one particular fetish. So when I created my website, I created a fetish glossary of 50 different fetishes. And I always considered myself to be a polyfetishist. Because I did know people who were very into one particular fetish. And I thought, God, that's so boring just to be into one thing, one type of imagery only. And it must be kind of really boring to to be in a relationship with someone like that who's only into one thing, one thing all the time. So I had many, many fetishes on my website from sock fetish to different types of lingerie, leather when I wasn't vegan and latex, um, blindfolds, nape fetish. I mean, I was really going for all the different types of, you know, the very most popular ones to some that weren't popular at all, even bondage and things like that. But it was, I had one big omission on my website, which was foot fetish, interestingly. And that was because I never used to like my feet. I used to think they were kind of wide and I have um, kind of short pink toes that used to get very pink in the summer. 
And um, I remember one woman who was I used to work with and she said, if you've got feet like that, you have to wear nail polish. And I was like, I felt very, very insecure about my feet. And they've always been quite wide. So I have to be very careful about what type of shoes I wear because I walk a lot as well. And also walking a lot makes them kind of get pink in the summer, et cetera. So I've always kind of um, never felt that my feet could be um, erotically um, arousing <laughs> for anyone. But then um, one day I actually did some a photo session with the same guy who was the tickle fetishist. And I put those on my website and I was amazed at the uh, reaction that they had. Um, I couldn't believe that my feet um, actually had fans. I was unbelievable. I was just blown away by it. And a lot of people, uh, I do have a kind of like um, some some very loyal foot fans on my that follow me on my on my members area on my website and on Instagram. I started making foot photos on Instagram and um, and I got a lot of attention for it because I stopped wearing nail polish because of all, all the toxins in it. And then I got a lot of people who were really enjoying my naked um, not naked well kind of um, natural nails and uh, I just found it very kind of encouraging really. It was kind of like a body positivity thing for me trying to embrace my feet because I did realize that foot fetish, for example, the kind of feet that people enjoy looking at are not necessarily the same feet that you would see in a foot product advert. For example, if you're looking at um, like any advert that's for, let's say, plasters for the feet or anything, you're going to see kind of very photoshopped perfect foot. Whereas foot fetish forums will have all types of feet. And it's all about how the foot interacts with that spectator again. It's kind of a, um, it's kind of like a conversation between the photo and the spectator. There's something going on. It's not just a kind of flat image of beauty. And for example, there's all different kind of like sub fetishes within foot fetish, such as wrinkled soles when you scrunch up your foot, the fourth hole when you put your feet together, and there's that kind of gap where the arches. People like some people like high arches, which I have, and also dirty feet. I mean, once I was, um, I really needed to clean the floor in my um, in my apartment, and the soles of my feet were were black with all the dust. I mean, they were just so dirty. So I made, I took a photo of the, of the, of the feet. Then you get some people thinking it's disgusting. Other people thinking they wanted to lick it, you know? So it was kind of um, funny to play around with that. And it really made me enjoy my feet. So something that was a kink for some people, um, just helped me to embrace, accept and enjoy my feet, especially and highlight on the word enjoy, because before that experience, when I was having an all um, full body massage, I would always say to the masseuse, I had to not touch my feet because I used to be very, very ticklish and I didn't really enjoy it. I felt very self-conscious. And I think a lot of people do feel self-conscious about their feet, but now I'm really loving it. And the last guy I was with was a really big foot fetishist. I mean, he just um, always would um, make me dinner and then uh, grab my feet and then massage them. And I was just like, wow, I love it. I love it. I love it so much. And sometimes um, I've been in fetish parties where there are guys who will give you free foot massage just because they enjoy it. And, and if I know they enjoy it, then I enjoy it even more. So yeah, so foot fetish is uh, something that I am very much into at the moment. I wouldn't say I'm a foot fetishist, but I'm, I appreciate other people appreciating my feet and I enjoy my feet a lot. And today's story is actually about when I went to a fetish club. I'm not really into kind of expressing my 
own fetish desires in public unless it's just a foot massage. But I did like like to, I do consider myself to be a bit of a voyeur. So f- often I've been invited to fetish parties and um, I've gone along just to kind of watch other people get up to no good. And today's story about is about when I went to my local fetish club to watch um, one of my friends um, initiate her shibari fetish, which shibari is a type of bondage, which uses, I think it's kind of Japanese knots. It's very, they're very artistic knots with, with rope and also suspension where the, 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 the kind of fetish of being weightless and just being suspended in the air with all these knots and, um, and ropes. And it's a, it's a real art form. And some people just enjoy that absolute submission and um, and surrender as well. And it's a very aesthetic, um, but for me, it's not something I really want to do because I'm, I'm more into the kind of domination side, side of things, unless it's kind of tickling and a bit of foot fetish. But I mean, to be completely immobilized and hanging from, you know, suspended in the air is not something that does it for me, but I'm definitely a, a voyeur. So this is a story about me going along with a friend for her very first Shibari experience. Enjoy. Now it's time for this episode's erotic story, Sunday Worship by Venus O'Hara. Do you think they wash the ropes? I mean, I realise they must have absorbed sweat, other bodily fluids and samples of random people's DNA. And now they're just lying on the floor, which is probably dirty as well. This is what a female friend asked me. We were part of the audience at an exclusive Shibari event at my local fetish club on a Sunday afternoon. We were sitting in the front row and waiting for the show to begin. It was an intimate gathering of around a dozen people. My friend was a newbie in the fetish world, but she had a particular bondage fantasy that she wanted to explore. So she'd asked me to go along with her. As you might imagine, I was only too happy to oblige. I also began to wonder whether the ropes got washed regularly. Probably not, I answered her, but try not to think about it. She didn't look particularly convinced. Anyway, it was too late to get squeamish because she was next in line to be tied up. Ahead of her was a woman in her thirties. I recognized her because I'd seen her in the bar only a few minutes earlier. She was alone then. Now, however, she was completely naked and displaying herself in front of a room full of strangers. Is this your first time? The Shibari master asked her. She nodded nervously and made her way towards him. He was in his fifties, I guessed, an intellectual type with long white hair and a beard, a cross between Zeus and Santa Claus. As I looked on, I thought about all of those people who'd started their Sunday in a very different type of worship in mind. The kind that takes place in a church. After receiving a Catholic upbringing, I couldn't help but think about the similarities and the differences between the two types of ceremonial behaviour. In a church, for example, the cross is a physical warning against committing sin, as well as being a reminder of sacrifice. At the fetish club, however, people queued up to get tied to a cross purely for pleasure. 
I didn't need a statue of Jesus occupying the place. It was already set aside for a willing and compliant sub. That breed of submissive doesn't want to save the world. They just need to save themselves. At the club, the area set aside for the Shibari demonstration seemed very much like an altar to me. Its ceiling-mounted hook and sturdy suspension rope waited for the next bound worshipper. The man in charge of tying had a priestly look about him. The woman receiving the sacrament of shibari and suspension had the eager expression of someone taking communion. Her nakedness was celebrated, not frowned upon. Strange and hypnotic music reinforced the earnest atmosphere. I noticed that we were all dressed in a kind of fetishistic Sunday best, all tight, all black, all shiny. At the club, refusal to adhere to that dress code denied you access. In church, however, they are much more tolerant. The pure ritualized nature of the club reminded me of mass. Instead of having to get up early for that, at the club it was Sunday afternoon. The BDSM community has at least some consideration for your much-deserved Sunday lie-in. Being tied up and then suspended from the ceiling isn't really my thing, if I'm honest. But I'm still a greedy voyeur, and I do appreciate shibari as an art form. In particular, I admire its beautiful knots and the skill required to maintain consistency and symmetry in the rope work. But now, as I watched, I began to notice a great deal more. The energy that exists between the one doing the tying and the one being tied is blissful to behold. It was like being a mute witness to someone else's intimate erotic moment. That felt like a supreme privilege. The trust and the tenderness I spied on was mesmerizing. I observed how she closed her eyes and got lost in her own private fantasy world. She surrendered to the Shibari master. I also noticed the intensity with which he stared at her. Protective, desiring, his nose lingering around her nape, taking in her scent. Then the first knots were tied and her arms were fixed behind her back. Her arousal was evident. She had engorged labia, and there was a telltale glisten between the tops of her thighs, and her breasts, tipped with hard nipples, rose and fell. Her breath quickened. The knot that marked the beginning of her suspension and weightlessness was finally tied. Now she was truly at his mercy. When there were no more ropes to secure, she was suspended and it felt like a kind of climax. He gave her a little spin so he could admire the completion of another temporary masterpiece. It was a fleeting moment of fulfillment because there were other people waiting to enjoy their own experiences. Then, all of a sudden, I was suddenly aware of my own throbbing clitoris. The untying procedure began. I decided that nothing could better what I'd just witnessed. 
So I decided to make my excuses and leave. At the club, the Sunday worshippers are free to depart whenever they want. I told my friend, but she wanted to stay and have her turn. She didn't seem concerned about how hygienic the ropes were anymore. I went outside. It was still bright and sunny, a world away from the dark environment I just left. After taking a few moments to adjust, I made my way home to masturbate. After all that excitement, I decided that it was time to worship myself. The book I'm reading now is How to Be Everything, a guide for those who still don't know what they want to be when they grow up by Emily Wodnick. This is a story, this is a, not, not story, it's nonfiction, and it's for people who are multi-potentialites. Let me just read a little bit from the blurb. It says, having a lot of different ambitions, projects, and curiosities doesn't make you a jack of all trades, master of none. Your endless inquisitiveness doesn't mean you are broken or flaky. What you are is a multi-potentialite, someone with many interests and creative pursuits. And that is actually your biggest strength. That's something that I absolutely identify with. I mean, just today on um, Instagram, I posted, um, I made a post about this. I, I, I wrote, I do so many things. I'm a writer, a video creator, a product designer, a podcaster, a voiceover artist, a commercial actress, a product reviewer, and a digital product, um, digital product consultant. I love everything I do, but it can sometimes be overwhelming to have so many interests and skills simultaneously. I've had to learn the art of time management and delegation, and it hasn't been easy. I've sometimes felt the pressure to specialize, but when I learned about the concept of being a multi-potentialite, I realized that I didn't have to. So this is a real breath of fresh air to me to actually um, to learn that having so many different interests is that can actually be a good thing. It's very difficult to manage though. And I wanted to get this book because um, a lot of people around me that I spend my time with now, they've all been saying, how do you do so many things? They're kind of amazed. But for me personally, I don't really feel stressed out. And I've constantly been changing like what my daily tasks are in terms of work. For example, when I started my blogging journey in 2009, I was really focused on modeling and taking photos and acting and writing. Whereas now my content has completely changed. I'm doing more video, I'm doing consulting, I'm doing a podcast, I'm doing audio content, but still the message, the core message of my work is still the same. It's still um, about sexuality and overcoming taboos, etc. And also my the content I share has kind of reflected my own personal sexual journey. So, so that's kind of cool. But um, I've, I know so many different, I've just done so many different things in my life and it has felt very fragmented at times. And sometimes I have so many things to do. Sometimes I don't really know how to organize myself. And I kind of, um, what I try to do is I try to kind of listen to my body and uh, my mood. And, and for example, there are days that I feel like putting makeup on and getting dressed up and doing my hair. And on those days, I make videos and I do social media because I want to be seen. I feel like being seen. Whereas other days I just want to be behind a screen and not get dressed and not wear any makeup and have messy out of bed hair all day. And on those days I'm the, I am the kind of the writer, the more kind of behind the scenes 
types of content creation where image is not an issue. But I do want to do so many things and um, I'm just trying to do them in a better way. And I have been learning about the art of time management in the last couple of months. And it's been quite challenging, but I'm trying to kind of um, make a daily routine, for example, getting up and then reading and then emailing, then social media and then content creation. It's kind of like that pattern for me at the moment. And the content creation obviously changes from day to day and depending on my tasks, but it's very, very challenging. Also had to learn about delegating as well, because before my current situation with all of those tasks, I was doing even more. I was um, editing my videos and I was doing website stuff on WordPress. And it's just like, oh, it's terrible. It's, it's been, um, well, I, I'm, I'm not, it's kind of um, good to know how to do these things, but I don't think I need to. And I remember once I went to a co-working um, in 2019 and um, I was editing a video and the guy was sitting next to me saying, and he said, why are you editing your, editing your own video? And I was like, because I do everything. And he said, you should outsource it. So he told me about an incredible website where he outsources in the Philippines. And now I have a whole team working for me. It's absolutely amazing, but I do need to actually outsource a little bit more. But what I have learned from that situation or experience is that if you outsource to someone who, who, for example, video editing or SEO, and that's their speciality, it's going to, it's going to do it. They're going to do it much better than you. And it's going to kind of help you produce a lot more in the long run. So, but you still have to kind of manage these people, these people who work for you as well. And, um, and keep your eye on things and make sure things are done in the way you want them to be done. But, and also I think multi-potentialites are probably good at being, um, CEOs of companies. I'm not really at that stage yet, but I'm, uh, I'm more kind of bohemian content creator, but still it's good to know a lot how different things work. And I'm trying to, hopefully with, when I read this book, I'm going to turn my multi-potentialite-ism into something that is actually a virtue. Because the other, just now when I put this on Instagram, someone wrote, I have the same problem. Whereas that's the kind of like the mindset of this is like, it's a problem not to be specialized in something. Whereas I'm hoping to turn something that I'm, I, I myself thought of as, uh, as a problem into something that's a one of my biggest assets. And going back to the kind of fetish thing I was talking about earlier, I guess that was, um, my, I expressed my fetishism in a, in a similar way, wanting to be a poly fetishist rather than a mono fetishist and just being interested in one thing over and over and over. I think it's nice to have different interests. It keeps things very fresh. And also when I think about my work, um, let's say maybe seven years ago and who my rivals were, I was making content in Spanish and I remember a lot of um, content creators or, or bloggers or writers were very kind of angry with me because I wasn't a sexologist. And I'm, but my daily tasks are nothing like a sexologist. But they, some of them, believed that you had to be a sexologist to speak about sex. I mean, I just don't believe that at all. And um, I guess they, there was a bit of envy, I suppose, because I did get some kind of bigger deals than, than a lot of them, or kind of like book deals or TV things and stuff more than other people who are doing the kind of same thing, I, I suppose. I mean, if you're, if you study something and then there might be a lot of more people doing the same thing as you, but I mean, for me, I was kind of like creating something that was, that wasn't so common at the time. And when I think about those people who were, let's say my professional rivals back then, they are still doing the same thing now. Whereas I've kind of 
completely changed now and I'm not even doing the same thing as back then. So I think for me, it's um, definitely the way I am, but it's really challenging to stay grounded and focused on different things. And I think the the challenge or the is, is to try and do things in blocks, definitely, because sometimes also we're in a world now with social media and email and constant distractions and that, that can be, that can make a multi-potentialite feel even more fragmented in my experience. So now I'm trying to do things in our blocks and our writing and our emails and our this and our that and um, and trying to give those our blocks my 100% attention so that I can succeed and do everything. So that is how to be everything, a guide for those who still don't know what they want to be when they grow up by Emily Wodnick. Now it's time to slow things down as we prepare for this episode's guided affirmations meditation. It's probably not a good idea to listen to this while driving or operating machinery. Instead, take a break from whatever you're doing, get comfortable, take a deep breath, and enjoy. I enjoy exploring my fetishes. I explore my sexuality in a safe, sane and consensual situation. I am comfortable in my sexual and relationship identities. I am grateful for my body and the sexual pleasure it provides me. I enjoy exploring my kinks. I respect my limits. My sexual desires are important. situation. I am in 
respectful way. I only use accessories that are safe to use. I only do things that I'm comfortable with. My sexual desires are important. I enjoy exploring my fetishes. I explore my sexuality in a safe, sane and consensual situation. I know that consent is important. I accept my partner's kinks. I accept myself just as I am. My sexual tastes are normal. My sexual desires are important. I enjoy exploring my fetishes. I explore my sexuality in a safe, sane and consensual situation. My fantasies are important. I am able to talk about my desires openly. I adore discovering new things. I prioritize my sexual pleasure. My sexual desires are important. To find out more about me and my orgasmic lifestyle, visit venusohara.org or follow me on Instagram at instagram.com slash venusohara. Make sure to search for the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. Have an orgasmic week and make sure every day is a climax.